Welcome back to the Fatal Conceits podcast, a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily in that order. Uh, if you haven't done so already and you're just tuning in for the first time, please head over to our Substack page. That's at bonapriveresearch.substack.com, where you'll find plenty more articles on everything from high finance to lowly politics, and of course, many more conversations just like this. I'm joined in the studio, actually, here in Buenos Aires today with my good friend and long-term Argentine uh, expat, I guess, uh, Robert Marstrand. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Joel. Well, great to see you, uh, as always. Um, Joel and I usually, you know, when we're sharing time, tends to be over a a fat steak and a glass or two of the the local Malbec. But here we are uh, in a studio. Yeah, indeed. We, We might have to take a rain check on that meal until later uh, later in the day, mate. F- first of all, you were telling me just before uh, we got on air here about your trip in in a kind of uh, lunatic taxi, uh, and it struck me that that was somewhat me- somewhat metaphorical for some of the topics we're going to talk on uh, today. So, uh, give us a little bit of your backstory with regards to arriving here. What would it have been fifteen years ago, or something like that? Uh- yeah, well, I, I I actually emigrated here in two thousand and eight, as as your listeners can probably guess. Uh, I hail from the UK originally. I'm English from southeast England, a place called Sussex. Um, my first time in Argentina was in two thousand and two, which was an interesting time because it was just after, or almost actually, sort of in the middle of a massive financial crisis. So Argentina defaulted on its debt and had a massive. Um, kind of two-thirds currency devaluation around that time. So the peso collapsed against the dollar. Um, I still have a pair of boots, by the way, I bought back then, August 2002. I bought a pair of ankle boots. They cost me the grand total of $20, and, and, uh, and they're still going was, strong. How much was that in uh, in pesos at the time? Because that's obviously uh, collapsed. Well, I, I suppose by that point, it would have been about 60 pesos. Right. Um, and, and, and how much did you pay for your taxi ride in this morning, just so readers can get a... An idea of how much the peso has collapsed. Well, my 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 what should have been a ten minute taxi ride that took five minutes because I was being driven by a maniac, <laughs> uh, and that I believe probably had a rigged meter that bumped up the price, cost mm-hmm. me about uh, three hundred pesos, which is about a buck fifty. Right. Uh, it should have been about a buck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you got completely ripped off and had to throw in an extra an extra couple of quarters. Mate, uh, you and I share a lot of articles, uh, you know, just regarding what's happening in current affairs, both down here in Argentina and uh, in your home country, mine, and uh, and in the US. Uh, an article, a Wall Street Journal article, came across our kind of collective desk within the past couple of weeks, describing what I think may turn out to be the kind of inflationary ghost of America's future, or maybe even the future of many Western nations that are just now seeing uh, inflation tick up to sort of once in a generation highs, uh, depending on how you how you measure it. Um, but for the Argentines, uh, where we currently have an official inflation rate of over 50% right now, uh, it strikes me that the people here have been dealing with this for you know, goodness knows how long they have sort of adapted. They've anti-fragilized themselves uh, to some extent. Uh, how do you see, having lived here for you know the past fifteen years, the people of Argentina uh, adapting to you know this 
what for many people would be a completely foreign and very, very sort of out of whack economy. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say when I arrived here in 2008, inflation was about 15% a year, one five. And it's just gone up and up and up since then. Um, so, yeah, it's never had low inflation since I've been here. Um, I forget the the long-term average, but it's some monstrous number because they had hyperinflation back in the 80s and so forth. Um, look, all the stuff that happens here, you know, borrowing money you can't afford to pay back, printing money like crazy from the central bank, um, is happening in the US and, and across Europe, for that matter. Um, if you look at uh, something I, I write about and, and look at quite a lot, if you look at uh, US bank deposits since just before the pandemic started, so let's say February um, February kind of uh, 2020, mm-hmm. um, US bank deposits are up about 35 40%, so in just over two years. Right. The economy is more or less the same kind of size in terms of volume. It went down during the pandemic and came back. Guess what? You get inflation. Well, guess what? We have inflation in Argentina too because they keep printing masses of money. And you know what? Politicians, central bankers here will often say dumb things like inflation's not created by the emission of money or money printing. If you it's, want gre- to. it's greedy capitalists. Or yeah, it's, it's, it's price, price gouging. gouging or... It's whatever. It's speculators. Right. It's whatever it, it happens to be, whatever they happen to claim. I, I, mean, I remember a few years ago, there was a head of the central bank here who said that, um, that said that exa- exactly that, that inflation wasn't created by money printing. And there was a, a finance minister, or maybe he was vice president by then, who said that inflation only affects the rich. Well, we all know it's the other way around. It's the poor that get get affected (laughs) most. Now, here in Argentina, frankly, you know, who gets affected most depends on where they fit into the kind of social structure. So the very wealthy who have overseas assets and foreign currency assets and so forth don't get affected that badly. The people at the very bottom who just have a bad life, whatever happens, they're, they're struggling badly. They rely on handouts from the government. They tend to be adjusted for inflation. So they kind of struggle along, I think, at the same sort of level, yep. by and large. It's the people in the middle that get squeezed. It's, it's the middle class, the people that have salaried jobs, and maybe their salaries don't keep up mm-hmm. with the inflation in peso terms. They're paid in local currency. So those are the ones that get squeezed. Um, but it's brutal. I mean, I mean, 50% inflation a year. I mean, you're, you're talking about prices doubling in less than two years, a year and a bit. So, you know, crazy. Right. This is, and this is something that I, I think, to your point about um, a loss of purchasing power for real wages, that is, uh, real wages going down uh, when adjusted for inflation, this is something that I think people in the United States, uh, and I, I'm not sure about the UK, but I imagine that many countries in the Eurozone and uh, Australia, Japan and elsewhere are now just kind of experiencing for the first time, so some of the um, some of the strategies that people in that article down here in Argentina were were using was were things like, you know, going to the store when there are discounts, coupon clipping, um, you know, this kind of thing, but also um, delaying payments, taking out loans, and then paying in installments, uh, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, but. If you think that your money is going to be worth, or rather you know that your money is going to be worth 50% less 12 months from now, uh, then it does make a certain amount of sense to take out a loan and pay it back with deflated currency uh, sometime in the future. But it doesn't say a lot about uh, planning for the future (laughs) when you're trying to get rid of your money as quickly as possible uh, or diversify into uh, other assets. Is this something that people in the US and across the West broadly are going to have to sort of 
learn to deal with uh, in the future? I think they are. I mean, um, if you've got dollars sitting in the bank and inflation's running at 10% a year, you're losing a lot of buying power because you certainly aren't getting a lot of interest from the bank right. at the moment, right? right. Um, I mean, I've seen people here, uh, you know, if, if you've got a few extra pesos at the end of the month, um, you stockpile, you know, whatever you might need for in the future. So I've seen people loading up their storage units with things as simple as, as um, you know, toilet paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> you might buy some wine, you might buy some canned foods, you might buy, you know, anything that's, that's not going to degrade. Um, people here also, I've, I've heard about people who maybe want to build an extension on their home, but they don't have all the money up front. So they'll buy a few bricks at a time. At least the brick is still a brick when it comes right. to actually sticking it together into a wall, whereas a peso is going to be worth a lot, le a lot less. Um, will people get to that or learn, relearn to do that in the, the US and the UK and other places? Well, they may have to if it, if it carries on like this. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, people also have, tend to have, if you have a pension fund, if you follow standard advice, you probably have huge investments in US Treasury bonds or gilts as they are in the UK or whatever in other countries. These are dreadful places to be with. If they're paying you like 2% a year and inflation's at 10%, yeah. So people have got to think how to get out of uh, some of the stuff they're used to, their local currency, their bonds, their whatever. Of course, people here are very clued up about that. The trouble is the government is very aggressive about blocking the exits. So I, think, I believe controls people... And, yeah. Well, yeah, like people here, you know, people here, <clears> if you have spare pesos in your bank account, from if you've got anything left at the end of the month, I think you're limited to something like $200 a month that you can buy. You in know, foreign exchange, in, in yeah, foreign so, currency, so through the through the official market, so and and which gets you the better rate. So, you know, uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned here about about how governments can really clamp down. So when their their policies and their central bank policies are failing, they'll try all sorts of tricks to right. stop people protecting themselves. So, so you, you've got to, you've, you've got to essentially try and get ahead of them. So un unpack that a little bit because this is something that you and I talk about and, you know, people down here who save, invest, earn uh, in another currency like dollars or, or British pounds. This is something that we kind of bandy about uh, pretty regularly, this idea of parallel rates. But I think that's something of a novelty to people in the US or Australia or the UK where, you know, we have an exchange rate for, let's say, Australian dollars to US dollars. And that's the exchange rate. What? Why is there a parallel exchange rate? Explain that for our listeners. Let them know why there's such a huge spread between the official and the unofficial, or rather, blue rate. Well, that, that's quite a rabbit hole to go down because I think there's something like five, six, or seven different exchange right, rates, right. Open, depending <laughs> which one you want to pick. Right. So let's go with the blue. <laughs> yeah. So the, there's there's the official exchange rate, which everyone would be familiar with, which is you know you go to your bank and you want to. Uh, buy some foreign currency to go on holiday or whatever, and they'll do it at the exchange rate plus their commission or whatever. But over here, there's also uh, at the other extreme, there's something. It's called dollar blue. I don't know why it's called dollar blue, but it is. It's the it's the black market, but it's called the blue market here. And um, it's it's a, a officially illegal market. It's backstreet, you know, dealers that you go and you take your pile of cash to, and they'll convert it either from pesos into dollars or dollars into pesos. And that exchange rate is roughly twice the official rate. So um, I forget what the official rate is exactly now, but let's say it's 110 pesos per dollar. Something like you that. Go, you go to your backstreet guy and he'll probably give you 210, 220, something like that. Um, the other way around. 
And then in between, you've got these other rates, which is that so there's there's a, a legal market through the bond market for getting money in and out of the country, which trades bonds between New York and Buenos Aires, which is close to that black market rate. As far as I'm concerned, that's the market rate. That's the mm. real market rate. It's legal and it's it's much higher than official. Right. And then in between, <clears throat> you've, the government imposes taxes on foreign purchases. So if I go on holiday, let's say from here, and buy something with my Argentine credit card, they automatically add an income tax on that, if you like. So, so that puts it somewhere nearer. How does that... Does, does so, that so it's, get it's to disincentivize me spending money overseas, basically. They want me to spend my pesos here. Right. They want to keep you sort of captive, as it yeah. were, and, and not let any of that peso leakage. So... Uh, Explain how that happens. Does that, uh, it's something like 30% or something, I think, that tax on foreign credit card purchases. Yeah, and it's got some name, like it's the solidarity tax. Or right, it's always the, the, usual the patriotism of, tax yeah, or the, the good that, soldier tax. So there's that if you buy stuff. And there's another one if you, I think if you buy flights to go overseas, there's another tax added That's as well. right. So something yeah. odd goes on. Anyway, I... Does uh, that get yeah. deducted just sort of directly from your Oh, yeah, uh, it's, done, it's, done, it's done through your <laughs> bank. So, so... Very Orwellian, your, your really, bank, isn't it? For your, a bigger bank, brother. your bank is instructed by the government to automatically add that to any purchases you make overseas. Right. And then it gets taken out of your account So and then goes to the government. So it makes you, it makes <laughs> so, you wonder so, you know, people whose who money have, your money? <laughs> whose is your money? <laughs> you know, governments have all sorts of tricks that they can they can come up with to, right. uh, to, to control uh, the gates, to control capital. Right. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, the US already has capital controls in the sense that if you're a US citizen and you move overseas, you still pay tax to the US on your foreign income. And if you wanted to give up your, uh, as I understand it, if you want to give up your citizenship, you'll pay a massive exit fee. Yeah, Because I had a neighbour in London years ago. Mm. He was actually a German. Um, his wife was English, lived upstairs. And he'd lived in Washington for a couple of decades. And he left the US and he to his shock horror, discovered he had to pay some massive exit tax on the notional value of his pension, which wasn't even funds he had. It was just a notional value of money wow. he might get in future. Mm. And he got whacked with this massive bill. Um, and he wasn't even American. Just lived there for 20 years. It's, so It's extraordinary. Yeah, there are capital controls already. Um, right. I, I guess that some of these controls and taxes uh, are more conspicuous than others. And certainly <clears throat> people don't tend to think of, of inflation as a tax, but as we mentioned, if you're watching the purchasing power of your dollars or pesos or pounds or pengos or zlotis or whatever depreciate by 10, 20, or in Argentina's case, 50% per year, that's certainly a tax on your, your quality of life. I, I remember you uh, did a little bit of work um, when you were, I think maybe when you were writing with, uh, with our mutual friend Bill Bonner mm. some years ago in unpacking all of the... Uh, business taxes here in Argentina, if you were to operate what they call in Blanco, if you were to operate a business strictly above board, you were to, you know, cross all your T's and dot all your I's with the, the tax agency here. And it was some extraordinary amount, something like 130, it was above yeah. 100%, I remember. It was, a, it was a, yeah, it was a, a study done by one of the big global accounting firms. I think it was covering about 40, 45 countries, mm. something like that. And they looked at all the taxes levied on uh, companies it was sort of mid-cap small mid-cap companies it wasn't like you know, big multinationals sure. just the small stuff um they looked at all the taxes levied in these in these countries and their conclusion in argentina it was the only one that achieved this was that if if a if a, if a normal yeah quite if a normal business paid all the taxes that it was 
supposed to, it was guaranteed to make a loss, right? <laughs> which is which is obviously insane. Um, and no surprise, you know, I, I I would hate to try to be a local entrepreneur here. I think it's it's a phenomenally hard place. It ranks very low in the world. I mean, it's not quite as bad as say I don't know Eritrea or North Korea or somewhere, but it's right. it's not that far. Um, but uh, so uh, effectively, you reach the conclusion when you read stuff like that and talking to people. Uh, if somebody's running a business here, um, they have to kind of break the rules to to stay above water. And and not just that, if they don't, the guy next door will be. And right. so how do you keep up? Right, um, right. So it, it's a it's an insane situation. And if they're running a uh, a profitable business here, they must be incredibly nimble and <laughs> entrepreneurial and anti-fragile oh, and it's, uh, it's I, quite I know, a testament I know, to I know some successful acumen. I know some very successful entrepreneurs here and I think they're probably some of the best business people in the world yeah. given given what they have to put up with right right hardened if, in the, if the they, crucible if, if they were gifted the kind of uh, environment that people enjoy in the in the US let's say mm-hmm. particularly in certain states this place would rocket it would be an absolute overnight success within not that many years. Right. resources Yeah, you gave this place gave this place ten years of a decent, um, stable set of rules that were sensible, mm-hmm. and a tax system and employment law that was sensible. I think this place would absolutely boom. So let, let's talk about that then, because uh, I know you're headed back to the UK um, in in a month or so with with family. When you go back to the UK, when I go back to Australia, or we visit, uh, you know, the US. I oftentimes, and I'm sure you hear this as well, I oftentimes hear people uh, pining after, you know, with a kind of romantic tear in their eye or advocating for uh, these very, very uh, progressive taxation, let's say, or broadly socialist policies that of, of the stripe which have led Argentina to exactly the lamentable position that it finds itself in today, where it has an abundance of human capital and abundance of natural resources and, you know, can't seem to to get it together, where other countries like the UK, like the US or Australia, what is it that, you know, I mean, how do you address the, you know, the, the dinner table conversation where somebody is telling you with a straight face and without any hint of irony that, you know, what we need more of in the UK is some Argentine-like policies? Well, God, where to start with that? I mean, I have to say, as you know well, I'm I'm about to go over the um, the big barrier of, of my age beginning with a five oh, yeah. rather than a four, and I have to say that uh, the half ton. I have to say that as I get older, my appetite for having arguments with people over dinner tables or otherwise is diminishing because I just yeah you lose patience with it. But that said, I do observe um, a lot of the views and the actions. And I find it exasperating. In fact, one of the reasons I emigrated, it, it, despite all I've said about Argentina's problems, um, it is you know, Buenos Aires is a lovely city, and and I do love this part of the world. But um, when you don't live in your country of origin, it's easier to kind of put mental distance between yourself and the nonsense that's going on. Mm. When I go back to the UK, I'm instantly thinking, why on earth are they doing this nonsense? And just just this week, you know, just in the last couple of days, um, you know that. They have a, in theory, they have a conservative government, uh, which is, I suppose, broadly a bit like the Republicans. It's different, but it's it's yeah. you know, slightly to the right in theory. Small C conservative, supposed type. to be in favour of of um, business and all the rest of it. I think they're more. I think they're left of centre personally, but that, that's my view. Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is like the the um, what do you call it in the US Secretary of the Treasury, right? Um, 
is talking about putting windfall taxes on oil and gas companies. This is, you know, you know this is yeah. ma- this is madness. Uh, this is in the middle of a global energy uh, and commodity crisis, and they're talking about slapping extra taxes. These are companies which, by the way, are investing billions of dollars every year into renewables as they move away. They don't have a choice moving away from oil and gas over time, but it's going to take a lot, a lot of years, right? And a lot of money. slapping taxes on them just slows that down. So right. it, it would be idiotic. So that's just one example of what exasperates me. Um, it's not just taxes, it's it's just lots of petty rules. And it, it kind of really took off in the 90s, you know, when Tony Blair came in with what's called New Labour. Well, he had the hand of shoulder on his... Uh, the hand of history yeah, yeah, on his yeah, shoulder, had, right? He had the hand of history, had the hand of God, he had the hand of something on him, I don't know. But <laughs> um, they just started bringing in lots and lots of petty rules. It was sort of uh, effectively job creation, you know, um, all these sort of non-jobs in, the, in all the bureaucracies of the state. Mm-hmm. And they ramped up... Um, I think I once calculated. I once calculated in the UK during the Blair government that adjusted for inflation and um, population, that government spending per person, in real terms, so adjusted for inflation, went up something like forty percent. Incredible! Incredible! I mean, that's talk about big state, <laughs> right? I think that's, and they've never dialed it back. We've, the, you know, they've had a, in theory, had a conservative government since what twenty ten, right? And it's never gone down again. Well, that's that's the way, isn't it? I mean, it, it 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 tends to be rules. You know, rules are easily put on the books, but it's very very difficult to but, repeal. But also, if you if you give lots and lots of bureaucrats lots of jobs, they're going to be busybodies and they're going to bug you and get into your life. And I find it just drives me out the wall personally. And also, a, I find kind of a perverse uh, incentive structure where in the marketplace, for all its kind of you know rough and tumble turbulence or what have you. If you're a losing business, you tend to go out of business. If you're not satisfying your customers or you're not, you know, meeting payroll or you're not growing earnings or you're not, uh, you know, producing value for your shareholders, et cetera, then you don't stick around for very long or you become an acquisition target or whatever happens to you. But that, that capital becomes eventually liberated. It seems to be the opposite when it comes to conversations about the state where, you know, any program you happen to point your finger to, whether it's the war on drugs or the war on poverty or the war on terror or the war on COVID or the, you know, any of the above and plenty more, it seems the more inept the agency is, the more money uh, it gets. And as you say, that just kind of the, the Leviathan growth. Well, maybe I could, <clears throat> being the sort of uh, finance nerd I am, I, I um, sort of dig into things like what, what what's the real tax burden on people, mm. you know? Because we we think we pay a certain amount of tax, but what's it really? Now I I can't give you the numbers for the US, and also it varies by state and and all that kind of thing. Well, I was looking at the numbers in the UK, and uh, I reckon rich or poor, you know, high high income or low income. If you add in uh, so all the direct taxes, income taxes, and whatever, but then you look at the taxes embedded in the prices of things you buy. So all mm-hmm. the taxes that corporations pay, mm-hmm. so the income tax for their employees, their their local taxes on their property, their corporate taxes, and et cetera, et cetera. The, in UK, we have value-added tax, which is a sales tax as well. You add all of that together, I, I reckon that just in the, in the on average across all the stuff you buy, probably about 40%, maybe more, is just tax in the price of everything. It's probably even more in Argentina, by the way. Um, uh, but I reckon that, that people, roughly speaking, were paying about 60% tax across the board. And most people, most people probably think they pay about 20 Right, <laughs> you know, um, it 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 is insane, 
And um, it just goes up and up and up. The UK recently, the, the tax burden is the highest relative to GDP. I think it's been since the Second World War or something. Or maybe, or maybe it was the 60s, I can't remember. But it's, it's high. Anyway, that's the point. Right. So whether it's, whether it's this kind of inflate or die or uh, tax and spend mentality, it does seem that... <clears throat> well, sorry, sorry, just a crucial point no, go ahead. is here. You know, obviously, we have this cost of living um, crisis going on and price of energy and food and everything's rocketing. And I think it could go on for a while. Um, no one ever talks about the fact that so much of that cost is tax. Right. Could the government not scale back and cut some taxes and reduce our cost of... Purchases? It's not, it's not in no, the, not even talked about. Not in the nature of the beast. Um, so going back to what you said before about this, the, the um, proposed windfall tax for oil and gas companies, which are have just been the kind of whipping industry du jour or, or of the last decade, let's say. Um, a similar, similar windfall um, tax proposals have been tabled in the U.S., and it just strikes me as kind of perverse that at precisely the time when we are experiencing, let's be generous and diplomatic and say, um, tensions in the <laughs> in the global energy markets, <clears throat> we've had undercapitalization in this particular industry. I think the 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 high watermark for spending dollar spending for global exploration was around 2014. Uh, something like eight hundred billion dollars. That was, that was not coincidentally the high watermark for the last high in oil prices it's, it, itself. And it's been sort of whether it's being squeezed by um, environmentally sustainable governance and you know all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it it seems like it's it's very difficult f for entrepreneurs and businessmen to invest in critical energy. If they're being, you know, sort of beaten around, boxed around the ears uh, by by governments, w what's your outlook? I know I've already had a huge run up in energy prices, and we talk about this a lot uh, in in our uh, our newsletter upon a private research. But what what's your kind of general outlook for global energy prices in the next sort of short to medium term? Well, I think it's likely that oil and gas prices stay pretty high, of course, especially in in Europe. Of course, there's a big disparity right now between North American natural gas prices and European natural gas prices because right. it's cheaper to deliver gas through <laughs> pipelines than turn it into a liquid, stick it on a ship, sail it across the ocean, turn it back into gas, which is the liquid um, natural gas, liquefied natural gas. I'd say uh, the prices are likely to stay high um, because even if this whole thing's wrapped up in Ukraine tomorrow, is everyone going to rush back to buy Russian commodities and Russia being such a massive producer of both oil and natural gas. I suspect they'll be sanctioned for years, maybe decades, mm -hmm. until there's a change of um, leadership. And it, by the way, people talk about r removing Putin. Well, who knows if the next guy isn't worse? <laughs> <laughs> so don't get too excited about that idea. But uh, just a bigger picture. So I'd, I'd say prices probably stay high. Bigger picture. For all the hot air about the shift to renewables and getting to net zero by X year, depending on which government's saying what on what day of the week. Um, people forget, there's, there's a great there's a great piece of work done every year by a, an oil company called BP, it's a big oil company, probably heard of it, um, where they, they do a world energy review and they look at, although they're an oil and gas company, they look at coal, they look at nuclear, they look at wind and solar and the whole bit. And the, the stark reality is that 84%, roughly, of the world's energy comes from hydrocarbons. So that's mm -hmm. coal, oil and natural gas. 
then you've got a chunk that goes to, I think something like 10% goes to um, nuclear, comes from nuclear. Another chunk similar comes from uh, hydroelectricity, so damming up uh, rivers to create uh, lakes and then running the water through turbines. And then there's only a little bit left that's the kind of renewables, in quotes, you know, the solar and and wind piece mainly, and a few other bits, biofuels maybe. Um, how are we going to get that tiny piece to replace the 84%? Uh, well, it's going to take a damn long time. Um, so the fact is, whatever people say, oil, coal, natural gas are here to stay probably for decades, especially in poorer countries that can't afford the new technology straight away. They can barely keep the lights on as it is in many right. cases. And uh, don't forget, <clears throat> you know, everyone talks about, you know, everyone nicely says, well, well, in Europe, we can cut ourselves off from Russian oil and gas and let's all build lots more nuclear power stations. Well, great. But guess what? Nuclear technology is subject to restrictions on proliferation because of fears about weapons, right? Right. So all those poor countries, what are they going to do? They can't build nuclear because they're not allowed to. No one lets them. Right. So <clears throat> I don't think um, this thing's going to evolve anywhere near the way that the politicians claim that they want it to evolve. I think poor countries, big places like India or, where, or parts of Africa or wherever, they're just going to say, look, we need energy to keep the lights on. We need to keep our populations heated or lit or fed. You know, you need tractors, we need whatever. I don't think they're going to shift to massive great solar and wind farms anytime soon. There'll be a bit of noise around the edges to like keep people happy, but it won't. It won't happen. Simply won't happen. Right. And it does uh, It does strike me that in, in many of these, uh, you know, you mentioned India or Sri Lanka or, you know, nations that are decidedly not energy independent. And we've spoken a little bit about uh, Sri Lanka before, but there there are a lot of places where, you know, a large and meaningful portion of the population live at or around the kind of breadline level, uh, wherein, as you mentioned before, inflation hurting not the richest people, <laughs> contrary to what the Argentine government would have you believe, but inflation actually hitting the poorest people, we see 10, 15, 20% rises in the cost of energy combined with the inflationary pressures that these people are feeling. Uh, it, it does strike me that this, much like the Arab Spring in 2009 or 2010 or whenever it was, uh, it does strike me that we might be a lot closer to sort of civil unrest in, you know, volatile pockets of the world than than we might uh, necessarily be factoring into the geopolitical equation. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, um, people complain about rising gasoline prices or food prices or whatever in wealthy countries, but... In poor countries, poor populous countries, this is life or death stuff. You know, mm. if you can't you can't feed yourself. And you know, throughout history, revolutions have always been caused basically by populations becoming hungry. That's the that's the final trigger point. It doesn't matter how authoritarian the government is, if people are starving, they hit the streets right. and they and they will throw their lives on the line because they're gonna die anyway. Um, now the big the big the people that really struggle, so the, the rural poor usually just about scrape by because they could, they've got some plot of land, they can pl plant some food, they might have a, a goat or a sheep or whatever. It's the urban poor that, mm. that really struggle because they can't grow <clears> their <throat> own food um, and they're, you know, they're scraping a living. And so you think about some of those big cities in, in India or wherever. Um, I, I haven't actually been to Africa yet. I know you have, but I imagine some of those big African cities are pretty grim. Um, 
and those are the people that are that are likely to to, to riot. And you mentioned Sri Lanka. I mean, Sri Lanka's economy relies on, on tourism to a large degree, and of course, they got slammed during COVID because people weren't traveling. Right. And uh, I have a brother-in-law who has uh, a business there. As it happens, he lives in England, but he has a business in Sri Lanka, and they're going through rolling five to ten-hour um, power cuts at the moment. There are food shortages. They've just defaulted on their debt. They've had riots. So the place is going into meltdown. Indonesia, uh, biggest um, producer of cooking oil in the world, has recently started restricting exports of palm oil, which um, is controversial for some people because of uh, the habitats where the trees are, orangutans and things. But throughout Asia, it's a very important cooking oil. Mm-hmm. Um, it also goes into the filling in Oreo cookies, by the way, and shampoo and all sorts of other things. But uh, but, that, but that's another sign. A big country, 200 million people, and they're, they're restricting their exports of an important foodstuff. Right. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more of this through uh, through those poorer countries. And, of course, Argentina um, also has uh, restrictions on some of its food exports, particularly meat. Mm-hmm. Beef here is produced in great quantities because it's all about suppressing the price in the domestic market. For voting constituents. But if all these, and... if all these big food producers start cutting off... Uh, cutting off um, exports or restricting them in some way obviously it has knock-on effects to the importers the sri lankas of the world and we've seen i mean i know a lot has been made of these so-called supply chain disruptions and i've i've heard it i've I've heard it said before that well actually supply chains are the economy supply chains aren't a part of the economy supply chains are the kind of the um you know the capillaries and the and the 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 arteries and the veins uh, getting uh, necessary nutrients to different parts of of the marketplace. Um, we've seen, I think, in the UK, certainly in the US and and in Australia, I've noticed there have been, you know, people are starting to notice empty shelves. Uh, this seems unthinkable, um, it, you know, after a generation of more or less uninterrupted growth, and you know, this cornucopia of of goods and services that are ever being made, you know, easier and at our fingertips with the, you know, advent of various technologies and such. But it is interesting to note that now for the first time in decades, uh, people are looking at shortages. They're looking at long lines at the gas station. I mean, just how how fragile are these supply chains? And, you know, given what's happened, what's happening in, uh, in Eastern Europe and the energy markets in general, uh, how likely are we to see more of that kind of uh, those kind of empty shelf syndrome in <laughs> markets around the world? Well, I think the the whole two years of the COVID pandemic um, was a great wake up call to a lot of companies who were operating these just in time kind of supply chains from right around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one simple example would be um, the car manufacturers who suddenly found you know who I, I I quite like cars. I don't like modern cars that have so much computer technology loaded into them. Um, of course, they're completely reliant on all this computer technology now, and the shortage of chips has has created, you know, basically meant they had to shut down factories, and that's why second-hand car prices have gone through the roof, because people can't buy new ones, right. which is absurd, right? Um, China is still uh, locking down its cities. So Shanghai recently, and the, this week, there's been fears about them locking down Beijing. Um, that clearly... Uh, creates supply chain issues if you shut down all the big cities in China. I think Foxconn was uh, the. Oh yeah, they supply Apple, right? Yeah. Was that uh, in? I, I, I think saw it was a headline. I didn't, Shanghai, I, didn't, maybe. I didn't read the details. <clears throat> I saw a headline. Yeah. But yeah, when you when you lock down twenty five million people yeah. in Shanghai, 20, 25 million more people in Beijing, these people go to factories. 
they make products, those products get shipped to America and the UK or not, as the case may be. So, yeah, uh, mate, it's it's a little bit of a grim outlook. We're just kind of bumping up on the end of our time uh, here. But before we get going, uh, I want you to uh, mention where readers or listeners rather can find your work. I know you're with uh, South Bank Investment Research in the UK. Uh, give us the details on yeah, South Your Bank work. Investment Research, um, which is a branch of, uh, of the same outfit that you're, you're involved with. Um, it's mainly for a UK audience, but, uh, you know, we talk about the investment world in general as well. Uh, the product's called UK Independent Wealth. Um, and I'm sure I can provide you a link or something that, uh, that people can come and find us if they want to. Um, all right, well, we'll have to uh, organize a little bit more time uh, for our next podcast, or maybe we'll uh, we'll be lucky enough to do it uh, over a steak at Don's and a, and a big fat glass of Malbec. But Rob Marshall, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, joining me in the studio today. And for our listeners, please don't forget to head over to bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com where you can find plenty more conversations like this and many, many irreverent articles uh, about high finance and lowly politics besides. That's all for this week, and I'll catch you again next Sunday. Bye.